one of the most tenacious, persistent, and bravest of reporters in the world today is a graduate of Yale that speaks six languages. This reporter has worked for Fox News, ABC News, CBS News, and is now the chief international correspondent for CNN. The reporter has covered Beirut, Moscow, Cairo, Baghdad, Aleppo, and Beijing. But she has also covered her two children with baby blankets at night. This multi-award-winning American reporter is also a countess. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. All my life, watching America. All my life, it's panic in America. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. For days I've been dreaming about changing the news. For days I've been dreaming about changing the news. For days I've been dreaming about changing the news. But sometimes the news ain't something you choose my mind is a camera and my body's a clock i say my mind's like a camera and my body's a clock my mind's like a camera and my body's a clock but feelings invade me and leave me in shock Political nightmare all over the place I'm running relentless, a circular race Political nightmare all over the place And sometimes it scares me to see my own face it is my great pleasure to welcome to Watching America Clarissa Ward regarding her new book, moreover, On All Fronts, The Education of a Journalist. Now, you know her most likely as the chief international correspondent for CNN. Prior to that position, she worked for CBS News in London and also worked for ABC in Beijing. Additionally, she has worked for Fox News, where she was in Moscow for a number of years. But her particular place of interest on this fair globe, this big blue marble, is the Middle East for many reasons which we shall explore. She was educated at Yale and has an honorary doctorate from Middlebury College and is married to German Count Philip von Brunstoff. So technically, I would presume, and she can correct me in a moment if I'm wrong, she is also Countess von Bernstoff. Am I correct in that? You you are. I, I didn't actually take my husband's name, but technically you are correct, yes. Okay, good. Well, I can alternately call you Doctor or Countess, which is wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you were raised uh, both by an English daddy and an American mm-hmm. mummy. So you, you kind of, you know, uh, bounced between the UK and the USA. And that probably, I would imagine, was already an early introduction to understanding, although with mild difference, to different cultures. Was that helpful to you? was because I think when you live between two different cultures and have uh, families from two different cultures, and even though obviously we share a language, it is, uh, you know, different dialect, different vernacular, different accents, different expressions. And so you become more adept at 
being able to adapt easily and move between different worlds. And you become more used to traveling from a young age and jet lag, which uh, is certainly one of the perils of this job. So in many ways, I think it did sort of begin the process of preparing me for this kind of uh, multinational lifestyle. Clarissa, I'm always interested in who people were as children. Was there any discernible uh, indication of an aspiration towards journalism as you were uh, a child playing with dollies and and what have you? I think what uh, was noticeable about my childhood in that respect was a real interest in storytelling. I loved performing. I loved telling stories. I loved writing stories. Mm. I loved um, playing dress up and pretending to be different people in different worlds. And I loved movies as well. I was always very excited to try to get out of my bubble and out of my world and explore and try on different lives and move around and travel. And in some respects, that was also something of not the training of a foreign correspondent in the classical sense of the word, but as I said, with the sort of dual national thing, it prepares you for for living in a world where you spend lots of time in different cultures and have to quickly adapt and shift shapes to, uh, you know, be at ease. With your daddy having been a banker, uh, did he instill in you an awareness of the world uh, from virtually your inception? You know, my father moved to the uh, to Hong Kong when mm-hmm. I was 14 years old, and that was a, a really big moment for me because I would travel with my mother to go and visit him in the summers and in the holidays, and we would go and, and travel around Asia, and it was incredibly exciting to me. I hadn't been to the Far East before. It was a kind of a culture shock, but in an absolutely thrilling way, and my father was very keen to have me be engaged with the world and curious about different cultures and aware of what the situations in various different countries were. He also was very big on reading. And from a very young age, I was being given these various tomes and and being encouraged to read them. And, And that's what got me really into Russian literature, which in a roundabout way is sort of how I ended up in Moscow much later. Well, you eventually went to to Yale. And mm-hmm. uh, your daddy uh, had suggested that you study economics because <laughs> he saw the big picture that indeed it is a, even internationally a matter of show me the money uh, and where it leads. Uh, but what was your major at Yale? So, I mean, at first I should say my father really wanted me to understand economics because he wanted me to understand how the world works and how yes. capitalism works and global markets and issues like this. And I, I was very much a snob about it and said, oh, gosh, now I'm doing all my Russian literature and French New Wave cinema classes. And I do actually uh, sort of cringe to remember that because it would have been very helpful. And I, I had to do a lot more learning on the job later when I moved to Beijing and realized how important these economic issues were in, in, in guiding my reporting. Um, I studied comparative literature, which is uh, basically I studied Russian, French, and Italian literature. French and Italian literature I studied in French and Italian. Russian literature I studied in translation, though I started taking Russian lessons uh, my senior year of college. Well, then you go to Yale, you're in your senior year, and uh, the world is turned upside down uh, by the events of 9-11. At that point, uh, you are 21 years of age, and that ignites within you an ardent interest in in global affairs. Uh, 
And so you decide that you want to go and pursue journalism of a sort. And so uh, you're very forthright and adventurous. And so you, you immediately try and get in touch with CNN, their office, and you wind up doing an internship in Moscow. How long were you in internship status, if you will, in, mm -hmm. in journalism? I was an intern for three months in Moscow and it was a it was an incredible education it wasn't the busiest time in Moscow there mm. was much more emphasis understandably in the Middle East and also somewhat in Afghanistan uh, after you know the US invasion after the events of 9/11 so um I spent three months there, and then I went to New York, and I was desperate to start work right away, and CNN was basically saying they didn't have a full-time position available, and maybe in a couple of months, and that was when Fox came along and offered me to be an overnight desk assistant for a, a very small amount of money, and I leapt at the chance because I didn't want to be an extended intern. I wanted to get stuck in. And I wanted to start at the bottom because I wanted to understand the whole process of how how news gathering really works. Well, you, uh, your immediate contact uh, and point of hiring was, was David Rose, who you'd work for again eventually with CBS because he migrated over to CBS. Um, you, you really kind of, even though you did start, uh, albeit as an intern, you, you did have great advantages. I mean, you, you didn't come from, you know, lower market in a U.S. broadcasting service or, you know, working in Idaho and, you know, making your way to, to a higher market. Um, you were on the international scene right away. Do you think the fact that you were a polyglot with such a facility with language was very instrumental in that? I think it was instrumental in the sense that it gave me the confidence to start pushing them to send me to Iraq. And then when they eventually did, when I was 25, Fox News let me go to Baghdad on a six-week tour as a producer. Yes. And it, that's what also gave me the confidence to say, okay, I'm going to quit my job at Fox. I'm going to move to Beirut. I'm going to set myself up as a freelancer. I think if I hadn't have grown up in a sort of multicultural, multilingual world, I probably would have felt a little overwhelmed at making a, a big decision like that and frankly taking a big chance like that. But I knew that even though my Arabic wasn't great, my French was pretty good and, and you know, I would I, I felt that I would probably be fine in Beirut. So I do think that languages give you confidence in that sense when you're traveling and spending time in different countries. But I also tell, you know, young aspiring journalists who don't have a facility with languages that it's not essential. There are going to be many different talents that you can, uh, that you can work on that will help you with your reportage. And languages is one, but it's not essential. Indeed, that's very uh, encouraging and uh, kind of you to, to to share that because a lot of people wouldn't take that attitude and say, oh, forget it. But, you, but you're not. You're, you're very magnanimous that way and rightfully. <laughs> um, when you were a producer, you said at that time that you learned an awful lot in a short period. Uh, what exactly did you learn from correspondents observing them? Because mm. producer duties um, put you right into the thick of it, but you also get to observe the finesse with what people do, with what's presented to them by you. Right. And that's such a huge part of, you know, the book is called, on all fronts, The Education of a Journalist. Yes. And it's so important. I think people sometimes don't realize this. You don't just become a reporter. You don't just become a journalist. It takes years 
to really learn the trade and understand the ethics and um, start to excel in the art of storytelling. And the way as a young aspiring journalist you do that is by finding mentors in this industry. And I was very lucky to work with some great correspondents. I worked uh, with Jonathan Hunt, who is still at Fox News, and he and I were assigned to work together in Gaza when I was 26 years old or 25 years old even. And uh, I just remember watching the way he did his stand-ups, watching the way he did live shots, Mm. um, watching the way he was able to sort of Uh, consume a lot of information and then synthesize it into three coherent points, which would be the thrust of any one live shot. Or he would look at pictures or video and then determine what the story was and, and, and use those pictures to write the story. And that was so exciting to me and so illuminating because journalism isn't something that people just teach you or that you can just pick up a book and learn. You really have to be in the field and watching the pros who've been doing it for years. Let me ask you about uh, colleagues or uh, at that stage, uh, future colleagues of yours who worked for uh, competing uh, uh, entities. So people like Elizabeth Palmer, could you mm. could you approach somebody like her and say, look, um, can you give me any tips? And, and did you find them to be generous and forthcoming or did you have to kind of prove yourself to get through the threshold guardian, if you will, to get more information, say, okay, kid, this is how you do it. <laughs> Yeah, no. I'm, well, first of all, Liz Palmer is a great example because I subsequently worked with her at CBS, as you mentioned. I mean, she's incredibly gracious, yes. um, an unbelievable writer, a phenomenal journalist. And good I didn't Canadian. Cross paths, and a good Canadian. <laughs> um, I didn't cross paths with her at that stage, but I have no doubt that if I had, she would have been... Um, she would have been gracious. I've only ever seen her be um, incredibly gracious. And Mm. listen, there are two sort of schools of thought on this. I have come across journalists along the way as well who are not as interested in, uh, or don't have the time or the bandwidth to spend a lot of time with young aspiring would-be reporters. For me personally, I think it's hugely important. And to this day, I get a message, an email, or you know, someone sending me something on social media almost on a daily basis, if not certainly on a weekly basis. And I answer every single one of them. I talk to anyone who wants to talk to me on the phone or um, you know, via whatever um, is the best means of communication. And I try to help them work out where they want to be and and how they can get there and and give them the advice that I have learned from my own experience because I think it's so important and because I remember exactly how it felt when you're so desperate to be in the field and you know what you want to be doing, but it's so hard to get your break and to get out there. Well, you went through the uh, the proverbial looking glass like Alice, and so you go from being a producer and seeing others do what you wind up doing yourself. And um, you said that you <laughs> resorted to very clever techniques, like at times even digging your nails into your palms to stay alert and uh, just say something. Uh, has it gotten any easier or is it still a challenge at times for you? I would say, honestly, that I only really became fully comfortable with live shots when I came to CNN, because at CNN, you could be doing as many as 15 to 20 of them a day. And you do also learn coping mechanisms or strategies. It's very easy when you're exhausted occasionally to sort of go blank for a moment. And and we do that in normal speech as well. You'll be talking to someone if mm-hmm. you're really tired and you kind of go, uh, 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 
well, you can't do that on television. You need to keep talking. And even if you've forgotten what your next point is, you sort of learn the art of uh, treading water, as it were, or like preamble. And as long as you keep speaking, usually your next thought will come to you. And yes, one of my tactics, if I'm really feeling tired, if it's four in the morning and I've been doing live shots for 24 hours, I will literally dig my nails into my palms to keep me alert, to keep me awake. You know, it's about 90 seconds I've got to get through. It's not that long. But for that 90 seconds, I need to have a clear head. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell, and my guest, I'm so delighted to say, is Clarissa Ward. You know her as the, well, chief international correspondent for CNN. Her latest book is entitled On All Fronts, The Education of a Journalist. Um, You have always been uh, interested since you pursued journalism seriously to be in the Middle East, and you found yourself in Beirut. Well, you go three hours drive, we are told, on the normal, excellent conditions, and you can be in Damascus, which is a different Mm. world. Your heart, you have described as uh, really having a tremendous place for Syria. Why is that? It makes me so sad that most Americans, uh, you know, probably haven't had the chance to visit Syria and, and certainly are unlikely to have that chance for some years to come at least. I mean, Syria is a magical place. It is stunningly beautiful, incredible cultural heritage sites, history, uh, amazing markets, the souks, as they're called, uh, bustling with people and spices and different smells and textures and beautiful old uh, scabbards and mother of pearl and backgammon Mm. sets and people sitting around drinking tea and inviting you in and always offering you food and selling sweets or delicious fresh-pressed pomegranate juice. I mean, it's intoxicating, and the air smells of jasmine, and you amble down to the Umayyad Mosque, which is more than a 1,000 years old, and uh, it's just an extraordinary place to spend time. Uh, It's beautiful, it's fascinating, it's rich, it's vibrant, And um, it's a very special place. You have said elsewhere that uh, almost every single trip that you ever took to Syria, uh, 14 and counting at this point, almost every single trip you found that somebody, tragically, that you knew or, or had at least worked with was either killed, kidnapped or disappeared by some means. How do you cope with that when you lose people like Austin Tice, uh, Jim Foley, Pete Kasich, what impact does that have on your psyche? Uh, I mean, look, it's uh, it's crushing. And for all of us who have covered war for a long time, and I spent time in Iraq and Afghanistan and Gaza, the um, Beirut, the, I was there in 2006 during the war between Israel and Hezbollah. So, uh, you know, I have seen a lot of terrible things already and, and, and spent a lot of time in dangerous conflict zones. But Syria was just extraordinary. First of all, in the sense of it's like a David and Goliath type scenario, whereby you have the regime of Bashar al-Assad, which has an army, which has air power, um, which is dumping, you know, these sort of crudely homemade barrel bombs on residential civilian areas. And then you had the rebels who were basically lightly armed, poorly trained, and with no real clear command and control. And so 
it was already a unique conflict to cover. And then on top of that, yes, as you said, I soon found that every trip I did, the activist who hosts me maybe three months later would go missing or disappear or be kidnapped. And then as things grew even uglier and ISIS emerged, we saw the horrific kidnappings of Western journalists and ultimately their executions. And it is petrifying and horrifying and utterly heartbreaking to lose so many people, so many good people in in such horrific and brutal circumstances. And I think as a journalist, you really start to wonder at certain point what you've chosen to do with your life and, and whether that was the best call and whether you haven't signed up for more misery and more death um, than you can take. Because certainly when you're growing up, uh, when you're at college, and even if you know this is what you want to do, you, you never really imagine that that you're going to have friends who, who, who would be executed, that you're going to have friends who would be kidnapped, who would disappear, who would be tortured. I mean, that's really beyond the scope of most of our uh, imaginations. And, and it takes it takes a toll and it takes a lot of time to sort of absorb the full magnitude of that. One runs into people periodically, typically women, who will say, I don't want to bring children into this world because it's so, such a horrendous place. It's filled with mm. evil and mayhem and death. And yet you, more than most, have been intimate with such fair. And yet you have elected to have two children. Mm. What would you say to those women? Well, I mean, it's obviously, it's a very personal, subjective um, decision. And, and some women don't want children and, and some women think, as you just said, that it's such a terrible place to bring children into in this world and with all the threats to society in the future. Um, for me personally, I would say this. Yes, through my job, I am exposed to the worst of humanity, but I'm also exposed to the best of humanity because when you're in these terrible places, you see extraordinary acts of kindness. You mm -hmm. see incredible acts of bravery, of sacrifice, of generosity. And those are the things, those are the moments that that keep me going, that give me confidence and optimism in, in mankind, that make me believe that, um, that I did want to have children um, and that hopefully they will have uh, a better future with less war in it one day. Um, because I really think that mankind has, is capable of extraordinary beautiful things as well as extraordinarily dark things. Well, Clarissa, when you're doing your report and, you know, uh, the, the, this, the discipline of what you're in broadcasting means that you have to whittle it down. So what could be an entire hour documentary has to suddenly be uh, surmised in as little as two minutes, 40 seconds, if you're even fortunate enough to get that. Mm. Uh, a good day, yeah. Mm. Do, you, do you ever want to say, and by the way, Achman uh, gave uh, Zadik his last cigarette today. Oh, yes. And I think that's a big part of why I, I wrote the book, right? Because yeah. the reality is as the things that happen behind the camera are a huge part of what shapes our understanding of a conflict or a culture and the interactions we have and the moments of, uh, of cruelty or kindness, of laughter or tears these are often not dramatic enough to make it onto the evening news or they don't belong on the evening news because they don't relate to the events of the day. 
but they are what what guide us, what dictate to us or, 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 or give us a sense of what the real story is, what the reality is that people are living through and experiencing. And so I desperately wanted to share those stories with a broader audience who maybe don't feel super connected to the events going on in Syria. They find it so complicated. They can't keep track with all the different rebel groups. And I completely understand that. And people are busy and they have full lives. And it's hard to get your head around a a place that's so far away and, and, and so alien to what you're living through. And what I hope people will find when they read the book is it doesn't necessarily matter if you're following the news closely. These are human connections and human moments between people um, that anyone can access and respond to and, and feel connected to on some level and hopefully feel empathy and compassion for. You are constantly, or near constantly, at times uh, in war zones uh, by the nature of your profession and what you do. And that with it inevitably brings a high degree of stress, which might not be discernible in the moment. Um, the only even minute experience I've had similar to what you've had is uh, I've been in the Middle East and uh, been in an armored vehicle. But I even remember being in Jerusalem, uh, actually with a, a correspondent friend of mine. And um, as, as you are aware, and the audience may not be, uh, network shared uh, bureaus where they work mm. out of and the editors are next to each other and what have you. And I'm talking even back in the days of Connie Moose and people like that. And mm. I remember just walking down uh, Ben, uh, ben Yehuda, Yehuda Street uh, in Jerusalem, and there had been an explosion. This is years back, just a couple of nights before, and I thought, "Oh my gosh, I'm going to be watching every backpack that comes into this mm. establishment if I was in a restaurant." Uh, and then, you know, the same thing would 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 happen in in other environs. And then when I got back to the United States, or moreover, just got on the plane, I'd feel such a degree of like, "Oh yes, uh, I can go to Walmart now and relax, and everything's going to be okay." How do you handle being juxtaposed between both worlds? That one minute you 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 know a potential Katusha rocket can go off next to you, and then the next minute you are perhaps in a Starbucks in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. How how do you adjust? Um, I think it's really hard. First of all, I think it's one of the hardest parts of the job um, that that people don't really tell you about that. And actually, I think you're doing pretty well if you got back to the U.S. and then felt more relaxed. I mean, what sometimes happens to me is I come back to the U.K. and I'm still feeling that level of stress. I'm still feeling that level of threat everywhere. And I tend to have what I would call like intrusive thoughts, like panic thoughts about like thing, bad things that could happen, yes. that might happen in a war zone, but probably wouldn't happen on the streets of London in the course of an ordinary day. Right. And it usually takes me a while to sort of unwind a bit and understand that that's unlikely to happen here. And that's a a sort of separate part of my life. Part of it is that you have to compartmentalize. Part of it is that you learn from experience that you will feel a certain way when you get back from a very stressful assignment and that it will take at least a week before you start to return to any semblance of normalcy. Um, There's often guilt associated with coming home as well because You have left people who are in that war zone, who are still being blown up, who are still dying, who are still struggling and suffering. And then, you know, there I might be having a holiday in the south of France with my husband and best friends. I mean, how how is that fair? In what universe is that okay? Simply because I have a passport that allows me to leave when I want to. You've just awakened. I'm sorry. You just just awakened something in me that um, Mm. I've shared with my wife. 
I, on a, with a relief agency, I, I was in Vietnam one time in the north, and so Hanoi, but I went to an orphanage in Haiphong, which had, and I presume still has, one of the most abominable, appalling uh, sets of conditions. And every once in a while, and this has probably been a decade since I've been there, every once in a while mm. I'd be enjoying myself, and that for no reason, I don't understand, that memory would come back, and mm. then I feel guilt, instantaneous mm. guilt. Um, You've had truckloads of that experience. Mm, so mm, is it a mm. mental discipline where you just say, no, uh, I'm going to enjoy this shubbly right now? It's, um, I think it becomes like a question of survival. And I've struggled in the past, uh, especially covering Syria for a long time. I, I really was not able to sort of live my normal life with any, um, with any joy. And once you're unable to sort of find joy in your real life, in your normal life, then I think you need to be very, very careful. Um, You probably need to see a therapist, as I did. Mm -hmm. You need to be taking a much more proactive stance towards your mental health. And there comes a point where you realize that you won't be able to continue doing the job if you can't enjoy your life. Because you can't be miserable all the time, you can't be in a war zone all the time, and you'll burn out if you put that level of stress on yourself, and you'll hurt people in your life who love you, you'll hurt your family, you'll hurt your friends. So at a certain point, you realize that enjoying your life and enjoying the love and the privileges that you have is a crucial part of replenishing and sort of filling the tank, the emotional tank, that then gives you the ability to be a better reporter with greater compassion, with heightened empathy when you go back to a war zone. And when you understand that, the guilt starts to lift because you realize, I am a better reporter and a better person for being able to allow myself to feel joy, to allow myself to feel love, to allow myself to relax, to treat myself when I need to be treated, to be gentle with myself, to let go of the guilt. I, I actually read your book. <laughs> and Christine <laughs> Anampour, I remember, gave you great advice. And she, she principally said that. She said, you have to have people that love you, that you look forward to going back to, to make it bearable. Yeah, you have to have a normal life. Yeah. I mean, that's literally what she said. If, if you don't have a normal life, if you don't have some separation, then you are not that different from people living in war zones who really quickly become very traumatized. And even if you have a normal life, you still are are witnessing a lot of trauma, taking on a huge amount of stress. And I would argue that everyone doing this job needs to be checking in constantly about their mental health, needs to be checking in regularly with the therapist. And we also need to sort of get rid of this taboo People who cover war still find it so hard to talk about the fact that I am sure all of us have struggled at some time or another to to process everything we've experienced, to, to live with that level of stress and adrenaline. Um, and really, it should be something that we're all able to talk about. And even if we're not talking about it, we should all assume that in our private lives, we are talking about it and dealing with it and, and giving it the primary focus that it should have. 
We are talking with Clarissa Ward. Uh, You know her as the chief international correspondent for CNN. Her latest book, and it's really good and it's so revealing. I mean, I've read the entire thing. Uh, On All Fronts, The Education of a Journalist. And one of the things that um, I I really appreciated uh, about the book, among many things, is your openness uh, uh, about the impact of the psychological element. There's some practical things, though, I think a lot of us wonder about. When you go into a um, a new nation and uh, you have a breakdown of the uh, economy to the point that it even affects the street, how do you purchase mm. things? Uh, does CNN allocate you and say, okay, they're going to be concealed in a money belt or something, but here's three grand. So you can get a hotel or you can mm-hmm, bar to your mm-hmm. way out. Uh, you can't use plastic if the mechanisms have you know, no. totally fallen down. How do you handle that? How do you handle the money? Uh, cash is king. Okay. So you, you, if you're going into any kind of a conflict zone, you're going to be taking usually a large amount of cash with you. Um, and, you know, you you might divide it up between the team so that if something happened or, you know, one of you got robbed or something or lost your bag, that, you know, it's not all gone. Um, but very rarely in the places that I'm traveling is uh, our credit cards even an option. Um, so, yeah, it's all about... It's all about having cash, and you really have to make sure that you have enough to get in and get out. Um, you don't want to run out while you're there. Um, Has that ever you happened have to, to you? Be, have you ever um, been in a plight where you thought, "Oh gosh, I, I you know, I only have two hundred dollars left, and this is not going to help me"? No, it hasn't happened to me, and that's partly because you know I've been very privileged. I've worked with really great networks and really amazing producers, and so. You know, you just don't let that happen. Yeah, so you, they if know it the looks way like out. you're going to run out of money, you leave. Yeah. You know, or if there's some kind of a Western Union option or some way to get someone to hand deliver you cash. I mean, there's a hundred different ways to try to get cash into you, but um, you can't ever be in a position where you really truly run out of money because that's that's dangerous. With body armor suit, and invariably you have press written on the back of you. Uh, are there times that uh, are you glad that press is written there, or have there been moments when you think, "I really wish press wasn't on on my back"? Oh yeah, I mean, when I was in, you know, most of my trips into Syria, if I am wearing body armor, if I'm in a sort of really close to the front lines, then I'm wearing it under an abaya so that no one can see it. Yes, um, and I've been in other places as well where I would hide my body armor under some form of loose-fitting clothing, because it's not just about, uh, you know, making it clear that you're a journalist. There's also a very uncomfortable moment if you're in a dangerous place and other people don't have body armor, um, where you're like, well, if you don't have body armor, why should I have body armor? You know, I mean, you don't really want to gloat about the fact that, that you have access to potentially something that could save lives. Um, and you don't want to raise your profile either. Now, there's plenty of other scenarios, don't get me wrong, where I just wear my body armor and, 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 and there's lots of people wearing body armor and it's not a big deal. But if you're trying to have any kind of a low profile, um, then, yeah, you, you would want to hide it. Uh, you have much more added pressure on you being a female, and I don't say that patronizingly in any way. I hope it's not interpreted that no, way. Not it's at just all. a fact. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to contend with largely working with male crews, which means even things as simple as you know needing to relieve yourself, you have to contend with your, mm. a group of men. Where do you go and how do you be safe, etc. Um, the other factor, though, that really comes out in the book is 
your learning curve. Uh, you were mm. with the team, and um, there was an issue going on, I believe, in a hotel or outside the hotel. And the the chap said to you, the leader of the team said, stay in the vehicle. And you thought, yeah, okay, I'll stay in the vehicle. Or at least you mm. had good intentions. But then your, if you will, drive to be in the, in the center of things took over, and you did leave the vehicle, and then mm. things turned kind of ugly. Can you share with the audience what happened? Well, uh, yeah, I was in Gaza, and actually, uh, you know, I was stupid. I was young, and I wasn't wearing a headscarf, which is not absolutely essential in Gaza, but, eh, you know, I, it's a pretty conservative place. It's nicer to wear a headscarf. You don't have to wear it, like, completely covering all your hair, but it's yes. a nice gesture. Yes. Um, and I actually lit a cigarette because it had been an incredibly stressful day and we'd had two very close calls. We were waiting outside a hospital. My colleague went inside, but I was told to wait in the car. So I got out of the car and lit a cigarette. And in that part of the world, and particularly in a conservative place like Gaza, a woman smoking publicly is basically the equivalent of of saying that you're a prostitute. Um, And I sort of knew that, but I just was so fed up and strung out with the day's events that I just thought, yeah, I'm going to do it anyway. And immediately it was clear that it was a really stupid mistake. And um, people started to like press in on me and like touch me and ask me for cigarettes. And then I, you know, put the cigarette out and got back in the car and someone started pressing himself against the window, like pressing his crotch against the window. And, Mm. um, and then my, uh, fixer who had been inside the hospital saw what was going on and sort of ran back to the car and, and we left. And to be honest, I felt really ashamed because while obviously the, people who were pressing themselves against the car did not behave appropriately at all. Um, I would like to think that I know better than to just really flout other people's cultural practices and sensitivities. And part of doing this job, I have come to realize, is having a little bit of humility and behaving appropriately for whatever context or situation you're in. And so, especially if you're a woman, you need to be mindful of that. And we may not like it and we may not agree to these uh, cultural norms, but you're in their territory. You're on their turf. So you need to be a little bit respectful. And um, I learned that lesson that day. And, and, And since then, I've been very respectful. I dress very conservatively. I certainly wouldn't do anything stupid like that again. Um, I try very hard to bite my tongue sometimes. I mean, that doesn't mean that you stop doing your work or, you know, become sort of overly meek, but um, it means that you send the signal to people. And it's not, by the way, just women. Men need to do this too. Yes. Um, and, And many of my male colleagues do. I was in um, East Africa, and uh, I was in a tribe, and uh, again, relief work, and the men were all sitting on, on chairs, and the women run mats, and, you know, I was very stupid, like, oh, this isn't right, I'm going to get on the mat with the women. And mm-hmm. I realized I caused such uh, disruption, yeah. and it was stupid and arrogant of me to mm-hmm. think that in, you know, and I was younger too, okay, but for me to think that I could... Um, absolve or change something by my action was completely stupid and idiotic. So I've I've been there. We've been in, we, yeah, we've all, I mean, I remember also in Afghanistan, like there's a very specific way 
when you enter someone's house and 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 people are sitting in a circle mm. there's like a very specific way like you sit where your host tells you to sit okay and yes. sometimes you'll be tempted to say oh no but that person should sit there and I'll just sit here and it's like no <laughs> you're yeah. being rude you're not meaning to be rude you're meaning to be polite and say oh I shouldn't take that lovely seat but no sit where they tell you to sit. And sometimes (laughs) as a woman, they're going to ask you to go and sit in the room with the women. And part of you might feel a little bit galled by that, but you know what? You're going to learn a lot sitting in the room with the women. Um, The other question I have is about sleep deprivation. Uh, Not Uh, only is it uncomfortable, but it's flipping dangerous uh, because you can hallucinate and not gather Mm -hmm. things right. How have you learned to deal with that? I mean, you, first of all, you learn when to push back in the sense of, Let's say you've had two days of no sleep. You say to the bosses, I I need six hours of sleep tonight. Need to have six hours, okay? The other thing you need, learn to do is sleep in um, installments, kind of. Mm-hmm. So, like, okay, I have to go live through the Anderson Cooper show tonight. but And I need to do the morning show in the morning. But after the morning show is finished, I'm going to take three hours and I'm going to have a nap. Um and, you know, and then the other thing you just learn to do, your body does, the adrenaline kicks in, the stress kicks in, there's a lot of coffee, and you just learn to, you can probably go about a week with less than six hours of sleep a night, um, and some people can go even longer than that, but I, I can probably do it for about a week. Well, you were talking before about uh, males in um, Middle Eastern societies uh, having dominance and almost saying where you may sit and and go into this other room with women. Uh, You've experienced that uh, in in a different setting in Russia, ironically, with Saif um, Gaddafi, uh, (laughs) who pretty much ignored you during an entire meal and uh, evening. And you said it was very, very hurtful because you realized you looked around that you knew just as much, if not more, than the other males assembled there. Not only that, but you spoke Arabic as well. And then the men, uh, unceremoniously in the back of a car, um, if I may be so indelicate, tries to basically tongue-kiss you. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you weren't going to go for that. And amazingly, you <laughs> said something very, very, um, I don't want to say brazen, but certainly brave. Uh, you, you said, you know, in Arabic, your mother is uh, daughter of a whore or something like that. And yeah, I said you're the son of a whore. It was pretty brazen, given that his father was, you know, a brutal dictator at the yeah, time. Yeah, at that moment, did you think, oh my gosh, I'm done for? Even though you were in Russia, that the car was going to go over to the side of the road and I mean, I did, I kabang, do joke kabang. about it. I, I definitely had a moment of thinking that maybe I had sort of overstepped, but I I wasn't that worried about it because I knew the person who we were with. Um, was sort of a, a friend, and I knew that, okay, well, you know, I mean, the guy was so drunk, I honestly don't think he really sort of knew what he was doing, frankly. And also, he needed a wake-up call. Like, he, it wasn't like I hadn't I hadn't fobbed him off, like, ten times already with much yes. more delicate prose. I had, and he just wasn't getting the picture. So that's when I had to bust out the, the Arabic curse. But, um, <laughs> and it did get his attention. Unfortunately, he found it like unbelievably charming and delightful and and continued trying to pull away at me for uh, several more minutes. But, uh, you know, this part that irritated me, and maybe this is not normal, I don't know. The part that irritated me almost more than him trying to kiss me, which was, you know, gross and certainly unwelcome, um, but ultimately gave me a few laughs. What really irritated me was being dismissed at the dinner. And I Mm. think it's a very subtle thing, dismissal. Mm. 
mm-hmm. um, that women often experience. And, and, and we often experience it, by the way, not in places like Moscow or Libya or war zones. Uh, we experience it at home as well. And the point is, it still exists, the sort of attitude sometimes of like, oh, it's a you know, a nice, pretty young woman, but, you know, I'm, I'm talking about something serious now, you know, and, um, and, and I, frankly, I've, I've found it frustrating in a number of situations because you don't really know how to respond because if you respond by being overly pushy, then that's not great, right? You're sort of labeled as aggressive or pushy. You don't want that. But if you don't sort of assert yourself, then you just get steamrolled and ignored, which was, was fine in the case of Safe Gaddafi, but if I'm sitting in Washington, D.C. at some kind of a conference with a bunch of policy wonks and I'm the only person who's actually been to Aleppo, then, yeah, yes. I'd quite like to uh, be able to get my 10 cents in. Thank you very much. I want to talk about your extraordinary uh, adroitness and cleverness in gaining access to persons that other uh, journalists do not get the opportunity to do. Mm. It's an indication of brilliance and um, well, great you. sensitivity. You have interviewed jihadis. Uh, at one point, you said that you knew a Dutch jihadi, an Australian, Danish, American, and what have you. Mm. And you've interviewed people directly associated with ISIS. How do you get access to them when at any moment they could perhaps assume that you, as soon as you leave them, will uh, phone in the coordinates mm. for a drone to come and blow them apart? Yeah. Uh, that takes great tact. How did you do it? Well, honestly, it's... Um, you have to be willing to invest a huge amount of time in this kind of thing because you have to build relationships and you have to build trust. And obviously it's difficult because uh, on paper you don't have a whole lot in common, right? And you don't really have the same values. Um, So you have to find mutual uh, areas of, of trust or understanding. So if you're going to interview a jihadi, you're not going to interview a jihadi who's ever going to say that journalists are totally fair game to kill, right? Because right. that guy yeah. is not um, going to um, take care of you or, uh, or you know, could potentially kill you. So, yes, that's, that would be foolish. So you, you talk to a lot of different jihadis. You see which ones are the ones who can have a more substantial conversation. And you give them a fair shake, um, which is not to say that you agree with them, that you tolerate them, that you condone them, that you approve of them. It's just to say, this is what I want to do with this interview. Mm. I want to give people a better idea of what you're doing, why you're doing it, and what the repercussions are of it. I'm going to ask you questions. They're going to be tough questions. You're going to answer. I'm going to challenge you. but. I'm not going to take your words out of context. I'm not going to uh, sensationalize what you say or what you've done. I'm not going to pull any cheap shots, let's say. And, you know, after sort of weeks or sometimes months of discussion with someone and you learn a little bit about their family and, and maybe you tell them a bit about your family as well, you try to find small areas of common ground. Yes that you can learn to see each other as human beings yes. and not just as, uh, you know, a, a threat to one's existence. And, you know, it's not, it doesn't work always. You have to find the right people. Um, 
And uh, I've been fortunate in that I have found people who ultimately have been willing to tell their stories. Um, and it's taken a leap for, for both the interviewer and the interviewee. And I just want to underscore that it's not the same as saying, oh, you know, let's be friends, right? It's not friendship. That's not what it is. And and both sides understand that um, that neither approves of each other's lifestyle, right? At all, to put it mildly. Think of a psychiatrist who goes in to jails to talk to um, mass murderers, okay? That's what my, see... my daughter-in-law does that. Well, okay, so this is a good parallel. Look at how, I mean, if you ask her, and I'm sure you've had conversations about this, I'm sure she talks to them politely mm-hmm. and is gracious to them and listens to them. And, you know, there are boundaries, of course, but you don't just start shouting at them right? Because you're not going to get anything out of them if you do that. You're not going to be able to have a conversation. You're not going to learn anything. And sometimes the very act of being willing to listen is uh, enough to make someone want to talk. Have you ever found somebody who what they do is absolutely abhorrent to you, but you found strangely some degree of compassion for how they got that way? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Of course. I mean, I don't think I don't think you can be a good journalist on some level if you can't find that human side to mm. someone, mm. right? Yes. I remember interviewing one man in the West who was recruiting young Westerners to go and join ISIS, and that person I couldn't find any compassion for. Not least because he didn't actually go to Syria himself. He wasn't willing to pick up a sword and risk his life, but he was sending young men to their death by filling their heads with all sorts of nonsense. Mm. Um, So it's not everyone you feel compassion for, but I've definitely talked to some ISIS fighters, well, one in particular I can think of, who was sort of a lost soul, and um, he's actually in prison now. I don't feel sorry for him, and I think he it's good that he went to prison. I don't believe that he actually killed anyone, but he still joined a terrorist organization. But I can feel some level of compassion in terms of understanding the sort of sequence of events that led him down this unlikely and ultimately deeply unfortunate path. Some people see that as weakness, right? that by being able to feel compassion for people who do undesirable things or join undesirable groups, that by feeling that you are becoming weak. And I actually disagree with that. I think it's, um, I think it's a position of strength, yes. uh, if anything. Yes. But one of the sort of conclusions uh, towards the end of my book is that I believe that, you know, we are all kind of swimming around in shades of gray in this extraordinary world that we live in. But for a lot of people, that's unbearable. And they just want to live in world a world where it's black and white, where it's good and evil. And sometimes there is something that simple and clear that you can say, this is evil and this is good. But often things are more complicated than that and more nuanced than that and grayer. Clarissa Ward 
Is there any question that you wish I had asked you that I haven't? I actually don't think there is. I think this has been a lovely conversation. And what I have enjoyed about it is that I felt that it flowed very organically. And I felt like you were really engaged with some of the main themes of the book. And Thank it's you. so nice in this day and age to get to have a, a long flowing conversation like this. I am utterly delighted with having had you on the show. Um, this show is called Watching America, and, and so we concentrate on various types of Americans, but it is particularly a joy to talk to uh, a Brit-American who has a great affinity and love for both nations, so I can certainly relate to that. And you are in a very important part of the fabric of this nation and delivering uh, an unbiased, clear indication of what is going on elsewhere and to do it so, um, as I say, adroitly and cleverly. I want to thank you and also on a part of my audience. Thank you so much for your dedication and discipline. Clarissa thank Ward's so new book is called On All Fronts, The Education of a Journalist. And in the process, it's also an education for all of us who read it. I, I can't recommend it high more highly than I've already done. It's just exquisitely wonderful, very open, very candid, very direct, very earnest and honest. What more can you ask for? Clarissa Ward, thank you so much for being a part of Watching America. Take care. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. God bless. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Watching America. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our producer, Paul Bebo. Our senior producer is Gina Gamboni. Executive producer, Chuck Dowd. Chief of content, Heather Mazzoni. And CEO, Bert Schmidt. I'm watching America's creator and host, Dr. Alan Campbell. And I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you for your kind and considerate contributions that make this show possible. Until next time, Take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.